There are those of us who are haunted by our own mortality, for whom the specter of impending death is an ever-present hunter, always close behind, nipping at our heels. Most simply try to elude it, but some are determined to stop running and become hunters themselves. These are their tales. I'm your host, Tybee Diskin, and together we are Chasing Immortality. The Terracotta Legacy of the Dragon Emperor China is full of beautiful mountains, but the Qinling Mountains take the cake with their rounded peaks and jade forests. They look like they'd be more at home in a James Cameron epic than just chilling out in our actual reality. This range is home to the gorgeous Mount Li National Forest, sitting outside the city of Xi'an in central China. Thousands of years ago, Mount Li was famous for the gold and precious stones it contained, the northern side of the mountain rich in gold, and the south overflowing with jade. Over time, talk of its riches waned, leaving it to settle in people's minds as just another part of the landscape. But now, swarms of tourists would clue even the layman into what hides inside, something much more special than the gold and jade of yore. Five million people each year come from every corner of the globe to visit this World Heritage Site and National Forest in the mountains of China's Shaanxi province. The surroundings are gorgeous, but to get to the real treasure, there's still a bit of a trek. A long hike from the parking lot takes visitors to the front gates, where they will head through a fleet of metal detectors before being admitted to the grounds proper. When visitors enter, they can walk or pay a small fee to take an electric cart farther up the mountain to the main attraction. Almost everyone recommends taking the cart. Once visitors are ushered into what looks like an extra-long golf cart, they're taken on a scenic ride up a long road shrouded in willow trees. From there, it's another short walk into a massive museum entrance and then a 23-foot descent down a large staircase and into the earth. Through warmly lit exhibits and multilingual placards, visitors are led along to the big room, ready to take in the site they came for, the Terracotta Warriors. Ring any bells for anyone? I'd bet that plenty of us have at least heard of the Terracotta Warriors. 8,000 finely detailed clay statues guarding the tomb of one of the great Chinese emperors. The Warriors are normally a fixture in middle school social studies class, or it's possible that you saw the delightfully campy cash grab, The Mummy, Tomb of the Dragon Emperor, where Brendan Fraser has to stop the army from being reanimated. Plenty of people have heard that they exist, this miraculous fleet of clay army men. But... What do we actually know about how they got there? And who were they for? That's normally the piece of the story that's missing when you talk about this incredible archaeological discovery. Regardless of how they're presented, the Terracotta Warriors aren't a subterranean art exhibit. They're a tomb. A tomb for one of the most distinguished leaders China ever knew. Intrepid listeners, this week we would like to introduce you to Qin Shi Huang, one of the most influential rulers in all of Chinese history. His story has all of the makings of an epic novel. A boy king, a great war, power, intrigue, triumph. There are hundreds of interesting things about this man, but we're most interested in the way that Qin Shi Huang sought immortality. He has plenty in common with those we've covered so far on the show. Wealth, power, an obsession with death. And while Qin Shi Huang may have passed away in the physical realm, in many ways, he achieved immortality from beyond the grave. Come with us, if you will, to the beginning of the emperor's life and the early days of China more than 2,000 years ago. We should give you a little context up front. Long before Qin Shi Huang was born, China was ruled by the incredibly powerful Zhou dynasty. In ancient China, they ruled over a vast amount of land, but still not quite the full extent of what we now consider China. Their emperor also held absolute power, ruling by divine right. In other words, his subjects believed that he was the son of heaven, with a cosmic right to rule over his lands. The Zhou dynasty ruled for 800 years, so surely they're doing something right. Right? Eh, turns out not so much. Sure, they reigned for 800 years, but as early as the 8th century BCE, the power of the ruling dynasty was beginning to diminish. 
Various noblemen and military leaders began to assert their rights over the territory they controlled, and the Zhou dynasty simply didn't have a way to keep these upstarts in line. As if that weren't enough drama, outside forces were also threatening the borders of the Zhou kingdom. The dynasty buckled under all of this pressure, and the kingdom split into hundreds of small states. While these new territories were still technically loyal to the king, they were far more interested in asserting their sovereignty than they were in bowing to the emperor. In fact, the more independent these new states got, the more power-hungry they became. Give us some hedge money. We're doing this thing on our own. And how exactly do you get money for your newly formed state? Short answer? War. And then more war. Like, just, just so much war. From the 5th century BCE until 221 BCE, the Zhou dynasty slowly crumbled. This was an incredibly violent and turbulent time known as the Warring States Period. Factions within China constantly fought against each other to scrape together whatever meager power that they could. Not a great time to be in the Chinese army. And during this hellstorm of war and violence, into the world walks Jin Qi Huang. By the time that he was born, China's turf war was officially outlined. Seven kingdoms were at odds with each other. The Qi, Zhu, Jin, Han, Zhao, Wei, and the Yan. By this point, the Zhou dynasty wasn't even considered one of the seven major regions. In 256 BCE, the Qin state captured the royal city and killed the king. The Zhou dynasty was officially done. The flame of an 800-year-old kingdom had fizzled out. Qin Qi Huang was born circa 259 BCE, right after the Qin state overthrew the Zhou. Quick note here. History typically calls him Qin Qi Huang, but this is merely a title. His real name in his early life was Ying Zheng, but don't worry, we'll tell you when it changes. From the moment he was born, young Ying Zheng was what one might call a controversial dude. As an infant, the assumption was that he was first in line for one of the most powerful kingdoms in all of China. In reality, his life started out more like an ancient episode of Mori. Who is the father? To this day, we really aren't certain. On paper, Ying Zheng was the son of King Zhuangsheng and Lady Zhao. But the story seems to be much more complicated than that. Apparently, King Zhuangsheng and his queen met under rather unusual circumstances while he was being held hostage. Just like I've always dreamed. As a young prince, he was taken to secure peace between the Zhao and Qin kingdoms. His liberation from captivity only came thanks to the cunning of one greedy Zhao merchant named Lu Buwei. Lu Buwei was a smart man and a shrewd opportunist. He saw the young prince as a ticket to a higher status. The merchant class wasn't awful in ancient China, but the status of working in the royal court was a whole new level. Of course, Lu Buwei would free the poor unfortunate prince, and if that prince could happen to give his savior a job, all the better. Lu Buwei returned Zhuangsheng to the Qin state as a hero and won the heart of his leader even further by introducing the prince to Lady Zhao, his future queen. There was just one little thing Lu Buwei didn't disclose. This beautiful young lady was one of his former concubines, and she was pregnant by him before she and Zhuangsheng were wed. Is this true? Is it possible that Ying Zheng wasn't actually the son of the king, but rather the son of his royal advisor? Honestly, we don't know for sure. It wasn't uncommon for historians to start rumors about political figures they simply didn't like. This question has lingered for millennia, and definitely colors the events of Ying Zheng's later years. In 246 BCE, King Zhuangxiang died after only serving on the throne for three short years, leaving 13-year-old Ying Zheng next in line to be the king. Hell of a bar mitzvah, no? Did the king's voice break? Lucky for him, he only technically ruled China. The system of handing down the throne came with a series of caveats at the time. Yes, Ying Zheng was the king of the Qin kingdom, but it was accepted that younger rulers should be guided by their elders. Their elders like, oh, uh, I don't know, Lu Buwei maybe? That's right. Once a mere merchant, 
Lu Buwei had now made his way into one of the most powerful offices in the land, head regent and most trusted advisor to the kingdom of Qin. There was another, more romantic element to Lu Buwei's promotion as well. Now that the king was out of the picture and his potential son was ceremonially atop the throne, Buwei could continue his affair with the dowager Lady Zhao. From the courtroom to the bedroom, it seemed like Lu Buwei had gotten everything he wanted. This advise the king and bonus mom situation worked out pretty okay for a while. But as Yingsheng grew older, Lu Buwei started to realize that his affair with Lady Zhao could garner some horrific consequences for him if they were discovered. The queen was not thrilled by this and took personal offense when he started to avoid her in the palace. But Buwei, always the problem solver, proposed that he find her a second man with whom she could maintain a more public, less scandalous relationship. Of course, the man would have to be approved by Lu Buwei, but he was confident that he could find Lady Zhao a match. He found a more than willing participant in Lao Ai, a young man who had, let's say, quite the reputation around town. For the record, this dude was apparently so well endowed that he could spin a wheel on his erection. Is that important to the story? No, but I have to know it, and I'll not bear this burden alone. Okay? Of course, Queen Zhao couldn't just tote around her new boy toy. To cover up the relationship, Lu Buwei and the queen agreed for Lao Ai to have his head shaved and be disguised as a eunuch, even though he was apparently anything but. Queen Zhao was a big fan of Lao Ai, giving him titles, wealth, power, and even two children. Taibi, why are you going on a rant about the sex lives of royals? Listen, I promise this is relevant. It's relevant because Lao Ai's cushy arrangement didn't fulfill his lust for power. He was a fixture in the palace, sure, but like Lu Buwei, he wanted more than that. He began to entertain the idea of overthrowing Ying Zheng and installing one of his own sons as the king. But here's the thing about dudes that are obsessed with power. A lot of the time, they aren't the brightest crayons in the box. In 238 BCE, Lao Ai foiled his own plan in the way that many in history have before. He spilled all his secrets while he was drinking. Yingsheng already didn't care for his mom's new boyfriend. Lao Ai was arrogant, and he constantly belittled the young king whenever he got a chance. It all came to a head when Lao Ai got too drunk at a banquet and began to brag to the entire court about his exploits with Lady Zhao. He proclaimed to an entire table full of nobles that he was the king's stepfather, not simply a eunuch who had rowdy sleepovers with his mom. It even came out that Lu Buwei was essential in hooking the pair up. No secret went unspoken, and all of this was spilled while Ying Zheng was seated at the head of the table. Unsurprisingly, this little drunk man secret-telling time did not go well. Ying Zheng erupted into a rage and threw Lao Ai out of the palace. Exposed and stripped of his titles, Lao Ai now had nothing to lose. He decided that now was the time to stage a revolt against the young king. If he could overthrow Ying Zheng, he could take the throne for himself and one day leave it to one of the children he had fathered with the queen. This was his moment. If he was ever going to utilize his big, uh, let's just say his big eunuch energy, now was the time. But Lao Ai once again proved that he was not the sharpest knife in the drawer. Because staging a coup against the king was basically a suicide mission, he could barely assemble a team for his plot. The ragtag bunch that he was able to assemble was squashed immediately. With his revolt completely thwarted, Lao Ai's fate was now in the hands of the young, insulted king, and Ying Zheng was not happy. Infuriated by the whole affair, Ying Zheng made his power known by executing everyone involved, including murdering Lao Ai's two children, mothered by the queen. The queen herself wasn't murdered, but was confined to house arrest for the rest of her life. Lu Buwei faced a similar fate for his role in the rebellion. The young king stripped him of his powers and exiled him to a remote portion of the kingdom. Lu Buwei would later take his own life by drinking poisoned wine disgraced and fearful that he had made an enemy out of one of the most powerful kings in China. As upsetting as that fate is, the exiling of Lu Buwei was a show of mercy. Lao Ai received the worst punishment of all. 
Ying Zheng ordered that each of his limbs be tied to four separate horses in a courtyard surrounded by onlookers. When the young king gave the signal, each horse ran in an opposite direction until Lao Ai was torn limb from limb. Yeah. Drawn and quartered. Ying Zheng did not mess around. The truth surrounding his usurpation must have been painful for Ying Zheng, but it was also a turning point for him. Lu Bu Wei and his mother had been by his side for his entire life. Now they, and many others Zheng counted as allies, were no longer in the picture. However, in what could have been a very dark period in his life, the young king saw opportunity. Up to this point, his every move as a monarch had been carefully observed. He now had his entire kingdom at his disposal, and it was up to him, not Lu Bu Wei, not his mother, not his advisors, to decide what to do with it. The great betrayal became a turning point. Now, Ying Zheng could focus on his one true goal, conquering the other six warring factions of China and establishing one gigantic empire. Many had theorized about the possibility of all of China being unified as one kingdom, but no one had yet attempted it. Each of the seven factions of China had their own specific cultures that they were all prepared to defend tooth and nail. Hell, that's why they'd been fighting with each other for so long in the first place. While this was no small undertaking, Ying Zheng did have some advantages over the other six factions. For one thing, the Kingdom of Qin was the largest and most powerful out of the seven. Also, the location of the Qin Kingdom gave Ying Zheng inherent strategic advantage. The kingdom was situated on the west end of the empire, which meant military forces would simply have to push east to conquer the other warring states. Outside threats were always something to be aware of, but because of their position, they could never be completely surrounded. Lucky break. And it didn't hurt that, unlike some of the folks we've mentioned, Ying Zheng turned out to be a very bright crayon in the box. He knew that if he eventually wanted to have a unified empire, he would need a community of people from the other provinces working with him. In those times, this was virtually unheard of. Ancient China was a feudalist society, meaning your family's name and class determined where you were in life. If you were born into nobility, chances are that you'd be noble for the rest of your life. If you were born a peasant, tough break, kid. Feudalism is also a pretty insular structure. This system is one that thrives on staying within the family, or at the very least within your own society, blocking out any potential outsiders who could taint your royal legacy. This is why there's so much incest within European monarchies. You want to marry outside of your class or your country? What will the neighbors think? For the love of God, protect this family's reputation and marry your cousin! Anyway, Ying Zheng was the first to cast feudalism aside. He began to appoint officers to his military, regardless of their background and nationality. In fact, a man from the rival Chu state named Li Se became one of his closest advisors. Li Su had an incredible talent for legal bureaucracy and would go on to write many of the laws for the Qin dynasty. It was the first time that a ruler appointed a man from a rival state to such a prestigious position in the court. That's not to say that this new system of government was without its critics. Many people in the Qin state were wary of or downright cruel to people from outside the kingdom. And to be fair, there was an incident that inspired this distrust. One engineer from a neighboring province hired by Ying Zheng to build a canal turned out to be a spy. The man was caught attempting to divert the canal directly to his own state, exploiting Qin resources for his own gain. When he was discovered, many of Ying Zheng's advisors urged him to expel all foreigners from palace life. It was Li Su who bravely wrote a petition to be presented in front of the king, urging him otherwise. Yes, punish the man who disrespected you, but do not make other talented foreigners pay for the sins of one. Disagreeing with the king was simply not done at this time. Li Su knew that if Ying Zheng rejected his petition, the punishment could be severe. But Ying Zheng recognized and admired Li Su's bravery. He took the advice of his esteemed advisor and punished the spy, but made him finish building the canal the right way this time. Through Li Su, Ying Zheng came to realize that accepting outsiders into their kingdom would ultimately strengthen the empire. He continued to give newcomers outlets to use their talents, regardless of where they came from. As long as they were working toward the good of Qin society, they were welcome. This acceptance of others was one of many decisions the young king would make that would completely alter the course of Chinese history. It paid off very quickly. When the canal project was completed, 
a large portion of Qinland was transformed into fertile farmland. This padded the kingdom's already large bank account and allowed Yingzheng to move forward with building a military. He recruited one million men to go to war for him, providing them with the newest weapons and training them in the art of war. In no time at all, Yingzheng had created a war machine of epic proportions, ready to mobilize into the surrounding states. In 230 BCE, the 29-year-old king embarked on an epic military campaign to unite the crumbling remnants of the Zhou dynasty into one massive empire. The road to this goal was paved in blood. Violent battles raged through the provinces, proving that against the Qin war machine, diplomacy was useless. Some of the states came easy, but not all. Two years into the war, ambassadors from the Yan state arrived at the palace to meet with Yingzheng, bearing gifts that could prove useful to him. Yingzheng took the meeting. At first, everything appeared to be fine. These men were there to negotiate Yan's peaceful surrender and speak with their new ruler. They presented their gifts to Zheng. The first was a large bejeweled box containing a severed head. The diplomats told the young king that the head belonged to a Qin general who had deserted his troops and defected to the Yan province. The court of Yan beheaded the general as a sign to the Qin war machine that they would not tolerate such cowardice. And while Ying Zheng was flattered by this bloody gift, the second gift was what he was really excited for. The Yan ambassadors had brought him rare maps of their state so that Zheng could begin planning uses for his new lands. But when one of the men unfurled the map in the throne room, a dagger was revealed. These were no diplomats. This was an assassination plot. The assassin struck as quickly as he could, and Yingzheng was left without the aid of his orderlies. After all, palace staff was not allowed to enter the throne room without permission. In a miraculous turn of events, the young king thwarted the assassination plot all on his own, moving swiftly in his long robes and turning the dagger back into the stomach of the assassin. Immediately after, palace guards rushed to Yingzheng, who was infuriated beyond measure. He immediately demanded that the Yan province be invaded. Troops were dispatched immediately, and the Yan province was in Yingzheng's control soon after. One by one, over ten battle-filled years, the kingdoms of China fell like dominoes. With each state that came under Yingzheng's rule, his true goal came closer and closer to fruition. By 221 BCE, all seven kingdoms of China were now united underneath one massive Qin empire. An enormous coronation ceremony was held in the capital, and Yingzheng took the reins of his empire in front of hundreds of his subjects. To mark the occasion, Yingzheng christened himself with a new name, one befitting an emperor of a vast new territory. The name that we know today, Qin Shi Huang. This was a big move. A leader changing their own name was not typically done, but Qin Shi Huang was making a statement. Translated, Qin Shi Huang means God's first emperor of Qin. This renaming was a signal to all that there was now only one single sovereign. He was no longer king. He was a God-appointed emperor. This was a new chapter of history, and it was Qin Chi Huang who held the pen to write it. He knew that gaining the empire was one thing, but unifying it was another. It was important that his subjects felt loyal to the Qin Empire rather than to their old factions. So, he made some intelligent moves to encourage Qin unification. He abolished the former feudalist system and divided his lands into 36 specific prefectures, or provinces, which were under his direct control from his palace. Any aristocratic families were given homes in the capital city so that they weren't lording over far-off lands that Qin Shi Huang couldn't keep an eye on. He continued appointing military and government positions based on a person's abilities and knowledge of the subject, rather than their hereditary rights or noble family names. He and Lisa also standardized systems of measurement throughout the empire so that commerce was easier. Units of volume, length, and weight were made uniform throughout the entire country of China to encourage trade and make tax collection easier. The pair standardized currency and set to work improving the roads and infrastructure of the region. You might have heard of one of their projects. It's, uh, it's called the Great Wall of China. Yep. While sections of the Great Wall date all the way back to the 7th century BCE, Qin Shi Huang had all of the sections from the former kingdoms united into one enormous structure that protected China from northern invaders. He laid the foundation for the Ming Dynasty several hundred years later, who updated the wall and extended it even further. He and Li Se also developed another way to unify the empire, written language. 
Each previous kingdom had its own method of writing, which made interstate communications difficult. Li Su and Qin Shi Huang knew that in order to write the history of their dynasty and enforce new laws and policy, the writing system had to be unified. Work was done to create a new script out of an amalgamation of the writing systems that came before. For example, the character for horse in the Qin script has many of the same brushstrokes as the former Yan and Wu character for horse. If a person laid a character from the Zhao script over the same one from the Qin script, it's likely that there would be overlap in the brushstrokes. Qin Shi Huang did this as a physical representation of unifying the Seven Kingdoms. When the script was completed, scholars were sent all over the country to teach their subjects the new language. In order to do so, they would fill square wooden boxes with sand and give them long bamboo reeds to trace the outlines of the new letters. And now we have a writing system. Yay! By all accounts, Qin Shi Huang was doing a pretty great job being emperor. He achieved what many had dreamed, but no one had done before. This new society was no longer based on ritual and custom, but on strong central government and the rule of law. The unification seemed to be working. But the bigger you are, the worse your comment section gets. Qin Ji Huang was absolutely not without his critics. There were a handful of small revolts from people who remained loyal to their old kingdoms that were quickly squashed, but anti-Qin sentiment was alive and well. In one particularly traumatizing incident, Qin Shi Huang managed to survive a second assassination attempt. A disgruntled member of the Han Dynasty stalked his caravan as they traveled through the empire, and when opportunity arose, the assassin descended on the noble carriage with intent to attack and murder Qin Shi Huang and anyone surrounding him. Luckily, there was something the killer hadn't accounted for. Qin Shi Huang was smart. He traveled with two identical royal carriages in his party for this exact reason. The killer had struck the wrong carriage. When rebels couldn't commit bodily harm to Qin Shi Huang, they turned to burning him in the history books. Following dynasties painted him as a cruel and unforgiving tyrant with a violent streak. There are accounts of Huang burning books by the thousands and murdering scholars who owned banned texts. It's been written that he hated Confucianism, and that at his most tyrannical, he rounded up 460 Confucian scholars and had them buried alive. People wrote that this cruel emperor wanted to erase any history of China that came before him. He was the beginning of Chinese history, and so help him, he would be the end. We need to take these accounts with a grain of salt. Many historians debate if these allegations are true, and if they are, there's suspicion that they're greatly exaggerated. The dynasty that followed the Qin was the Han dynasty, and they were, how do I put this slightly, not fans. Back then, one of the worst ways to slander a political figure was to say that they hated scholars and tried to keep knowledge from their people. Plus, when you're a new ruler, you don't want to draw attention to another king's good ideas. What if the peasants think that the guy you just overthrew had some solid points? What if they even... Revolt? Qin Shi Huang did lead one of the most aggressive war machines in Chinese history, but there doesn't seem to be hard evidence that he was anti-scholar. On the contrary, Qin Shi Huang loved learning. He was said to have a vast library of texts containing practical knowledge, especially about farming, medicine, agriculture, and divination. During his 12-year reign, he was also known to travel throughout his lands to inspect the kingdom that he had built. Because once the dust had cleared from his massive invasion into the warring states, it was the first time that China had been relatively peaceful in centuries. Also, dude loved bureaucracy. He carefully built his laws and government to serve his people and keep government corruption at bay. He had no patience for any kind of bureaucratic shadiness, and he was quick to punish it. So, did this guy kill people when they acted out? That he did. But he probably wasn't anti-knowledge, so the book burning just doesn't really track. Now, that's not to say he didn't have other issues. One thing historians agree on is that toward the end of Qin Shi Huang's life, he was growing increasingly paranoid about his life expectancy. And honestly, who can blame the guy? Two assassination attempts, revolts, betrayal from his mom and closest confidant, a coup against him by his secret stepdad. Frankly, I'm surprised it took that long. His traumatic history led him to worry constantly about the end of his life. I mean, he had just built this enormous empire. He wanted to be around to oversee it. This is when Qin Shi Huang undertook his most ambitious project yet, his quest for immortality. Using the new Qin script, 
the emperor wrote a series of executive orders to be sent out to his prefectures. The earliest examples of his bureaucracy are thin wooden strips of these decrees, 36,000 of which were found abandoned in a well in 2002 in a portion of the Hunan province. Among these declarations was a royal decree demanding that his subjects search for an immortality elixir and report back to him with their findings. According to the BBC, the responses to this order express, quote, assorted awkward replies from regional governments who had failed to find the key to eternal life. Though, to be fair, one province did write back saying that they were pretty confident that one of their herbs from a local mountain might prolong someone's life. When his subjects didn't offer a solid solution, he threw a massive amount of resources into finding eternal life. His tours of the country were not simply to survey all that he ruled. He wanted everyone's input on how he could achieve immortality. He spoke to alchemists, magicians, and healers, trying any and all of their potential remedies for death. Many would later be put to death as charlatans when their pseudoscience was exposed. Qin Shi Huang dedicated his final years to finding a way to prevent his death, and when no one could give him a key to immortality, he went looking for one himself. He finally landed on one potential way that he could extend his life indefinitely. Mercury. Now, what exactly is mercury? Well, mercury is a heavy, silvery element that forms in the Earth's crust, including in deposits of coal. Thermometers, disc batteries, light bulbs, all of these everyday things contain mercury. With that information alone, one could probably theorize that eating it is a bad idea. Gwyneth Paltrow hasn't yet informed us of the health benefits of sticking batteries in our mouths, at least not yet. However, Jin Chi Huang felt it was the world's best kept medicinal secret Qin Shi Huang was known to ingest mercury in the form of pills, or as a tincture, believing that its properties held the secret to immortality. Ironically, historians are pretty sure this practice is what killed him. High levels of mercury exposure can wreak havoc on a person's brain. Once ingested, it can cross what scientists call the blood-brain barrier, and build up to the point where it directly affects a person's DNA. This can lead to a variety of neurodegenerative diseases like cancer, ALS, Parkinson's, and Alzheimer's. Long-term mercury ingestion can also cause cardiomyopathy, where the element builds up in your heart, causing the organ to dangerously enlarge, thickening and stiffening your blood tissue. On one hot summer day in 210 BCE, Qin Shi Huang passed away in his carriage while touring eastern China. Twelve years after unifying the country and more than two decades since he rose to power, the emperor was dead. He was 50 years old, which, interestingly, was twice as long as the life expectancy at the time. Could he have been on to something? Should we all apologize to our cardiovascular system and go buy mercury in bulk at Costco? Short answer, no. No, 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 no. No, we should not do that. Jin Chi Huang was just rich and lived in a much more healthy and less dangerous environment than most other people. He sought immortality, but the guy was still dead. His men returned his body to the capital in a large funeral procession. His tomb was filled with priceless treasures, rare birds, animals, and his wives were all sealed with him in the burial chamber. But just because he couldn't master immortality in his life didn't mean Qin Shi Huang believed it was all over. He believed that he would be able to rule in the afterlife. It was common at the time for kings to prepare for their death the moment they came to power. So from the time that Qin Shi Huang was 14 years old, he was dedicated to the comforts of his afterlife. Because of this, his tomb was the stuff of wonders. A lavish and impeccable subterranean copy of his empire, with a man-made mountain built over top to disguise his final resting place. Keep in mind, this is ancient China. 210 BCE to be exact. The Great Wall is still mostly made of tampered earth and wooden stability structures. There were no modern tools of the trade. No bulldozers, no dump trucks, no electric drills. Historians estimate that in order to achieve this massive architectural undertaking, it would have taken 700,000 workers over 38 years to complete. Why so many workers, you may ask? Because hundreds of them died during construction. Countless bodies of workers were found during excavation of Qin Shi Huang's tomb. During the building process, if someone collapsed of dehydration, heat, or just plain exhaustion, their body was left in the dirt, and the living workers just kept building. They had to, because Jin Chi Huang had incredibly elaborate demands. He knew that he had enemies, and he needed to be absolutely sure that he would be protected in the afterlife. And this is where the Terracotta Army comes in. 
The terracotta army was created to ensure protection of Qin Shi Huang's actual tomb. Thousands upon thousands of soldiers were erected to stand battle-ready, creating a massive human wall between the emperor and anyone who dared enter his tomb. Each one of these statues was life-sized. Their average height is 5 foot 11, but some are as tall as 6 foot 7 inches. Every single one was sculpted from the local clay in incredible detail. Each statue was also armed to the teeth, with crossbows, swords, even war chariots. The terracotta army was a warning to any grave robber or enemy set on desecrating Qin Shi Huang's resting place. The message was simple. Do not mess with me. However, with the tomb completed and their leader buried, the empire found itself in a state of disarray. Qin Shi Huang was the Qin Empire. They couldn't simply carry on without him. Within two years, the empire fell, and Qin Shi Huang drifted into relative obscurity, talked about only when he was being mocked by the following dynasty. That is, until the mid-20th century when his tomb was unearthed, and the thousands of terracotta soldiers archaeologists found entombed with him became all anyone could talk about. Archaeologists didn't even know where the tomb was for thousands of years. Qin Shi Huang's natural disguise of a man-made mountain was a smart move. Settled against the rest of the Qinling mountain range, his tomb was camouflaged by the natural surroundings. It wasn't until 1974, when farmers in China stumbled upon the remains of a clay figure in the dirt of the mountain, that one of the most important archaeological sites in history was uncovered for the world to see and study. Teams of archaeologists descended upon the site, uncovering hundreds of statues of warriors, horses, and carriages. This was an enormous moment in the archaeological world, but there was just one problem. No one had any idea what these statues were for. Some old women even believed that the statues were gods and would go inside of the dig site to light incense and pray to them. Archaeologists weren't convinced, but then again, who would have put them here? And why so many? Lucky for them, the terracotta soldiers held a vital clue right in their clay hands. They're very real weapons. When archaeologists uncovered a bronze dagger axe, hypotheses started to form. A dagger axe, for those who don't have infinite wisdom of ancient weaponry, looks kind of like a sharpened metal boomerang tied to the end of a broomstick with a spike on the very end. The idea of this spear-like weapon was that you could use it to thrust at and stab your enemy. You could use the blade in longer-range combat and fight with a shaft if your enemy got too close. Not only did the materials of the weapon provide a clue, but there were actual inscriptions on the blade written in Qin script that dated back to the 3rd century BCE, which meant that the nearby tomb that they had been digging for had to belong to Qin Shi Huang. As they dug, archaeologists realized just how enormous of a discovery this was. There are 8,000 known terracotta warriors, and every single one is sculpted with such detail that they look as though they could spring into action at a moment's notice. Altogether, there are three distinct pits of military men. The first pit is a perfect replica of Qin battle formation. Three rows of archers stand in the front, at attention, followed by 38 rows of infantrymen. They're flanked by even more soldiers facing outward, looking for threats in every direction. When they were all finally counted, it was found that there were 6,000 soldiers in pit one. Historians were able to glean an enormous amount of information from each soldier by the specific way they were constructed. Each pair of hands was modeled based on the type of weapon they held, with different care given to those with crossbows than those with spears or those with battle axes. Further inspection of the weapons led to another incredible discovery. The weapons unearthed during the dig were far more advanced than historians ever could have imagined. Swords once held by the statues 2,000 years ago were not only still sharp, but completely free of rust. Scientists conducted a series of experiments on these ancient weapons, hoping to figure out how they could be so pristine even after thousands of years. They concluded that the swords of the warriors were all coated in chromium oxide, a chemical compound that requires the sword to be fired at more than 1400 degrees Fahrenheit to adhere to the blade. If you want an idea of how impressive that is, Germany didn't start to coat their swords like that until the 1930s, and the United States didn't learn how to do it until the 1950s. This wasn't the only modernized thing about this clay army. Over the two years it took to excavate Pit 1, two more pits were found in the surrounding area. The second pit is about 60 feet from the first, smaller, but still three times larger than a soccer field. More advanced warriors make their homes here, terracotta archers, charioters, and cavalrymen. In addition to over a thousand more soldiers, there are also 500 clay horses. And you know what? 
they had saddles. This doesn't sound like a big deal, but historians freaked out. The saddle wasn't supposed to have been used anywhere in the world until at least 100 years later. The decoration and build of the seat showed that the Qin dynasty was the first to enjoy the advantages of the saddle. After all, it gave you better speed, mobility, and tactical prowess than riding without one. The crossbows held by the warriors were also worth noting. They had automatic triggers that would give them twice the range of our modern-day assault rifles. Holding a Qin Dynasty crossbow, a skilled archer could hit a target from a mile away. And each bow was standardized. This meant that if a part gave out in the middle of battle, it could be quickly and easily replaced because everyone was using the same weapon. Further analysis showed similar standardization, among other chain weapons, too. When the third pit was discovered, there were substantially fewer soldiers. Judging by the uniforms of those that were there, it was clear that the statues in this section were higher-ranking officers of the army. In most ancient battles, generals and higher-ranking officers would ride into battle on the front lines. This showed a more modern approach to warfare, implying that Qinhai officers instead gave orders from back behind the front lines. Presumably, this was so the battalion could better protect their best strategic minds. This was virtually unheard of in the ancient world. With all of these innovations, it's no wonder their war machine was able to conquer all of China. The burial mound wasn't all soldiers, either. In 1999, a different form of terracotta figures were found in a fourth pit, not far from the others. These new statues weren't militiamen. They were entertainers. During his lifetime, Qin Shi Huang had another, softer side. The guy loved to party. He loved musicians, acrobats, and dancers, and would commonly host banquets at the palace featuring performers of all kinds. He was even known to send troops of acrobats to men fighting on the front lines to improve morale. By the way these specific statues are positioned, they seem to be mid-performance. Some have an arm held high to spin a vase upon, and others stand straight with their hands turned palm-side up, as though balancing a fellow performer on a long wooden rod. Surrounding these statues were countless caches of elegant bronze cranes, swans, and geese to symbolize longevity. The burial mound is not only a tomb, but a treasure trove of precious objects. An archaeologist told the Smithsonian that at present, 180 pits have been found containing various treasures. Every new discovery was precious to the archaeologists working on the dig. Many would try to recreate animations or physical representations of what the army would have looked like in its heyday. Fascinated by the detail and preservation of the statues, local artisans were commissioned to try to recreate the terracotta warriors the way they would have been made during the Qin dynasty. It's not easy, even with modern technology. Contemporary sculptors traveled to the site and used clay from the surrounding area. They had to be careful because if the clay was too wet or too dry, the entire statue could crumble. The group of artists concluded that the warriors were likely made of long clay ropes. Damp clay would be rolled into long tubes and the sculptures would be formed from the feet up, making it easy for artisans to create specific body shapes or features. It also kept the structure hollow, which made it less likely to collapse under its own weight. They concluded that the hands, feet, and heads of the statues were made separately, dried and detailed, before being fitted to a specific form. This was another process that made adding facial features and detailing easy. Archaeologists also noticed remnants of paint flecks on the faces and collars of some of the soldiers. In fact, judging by pictures taken right when the soldiers were uncovered, some of the arms and clothing details also seemed to light up in technicolor. Upon further research, the Smithsonian created an animation of what the soldiers would have looked like had they never been exposed to the air. The result is a massive exhibition with a rainbow of colors, the men's black hair reflecting off their pink skin and wearing every single color under the sun, depending on their rank and job. It's truly breathtaking. Intricate study of the warriors also gives us a wealth of information about who each particular person was. Looking at stance, facial features, and uniforms, historians were able to tell that Qin Shi Huang's army was made up of all ages, all walks of life, and people from the farthest reaches of his empire. However, even with all of these wonderful discoveries, several questions still remain. We don't know exactly who the terracotta warriors were. Some historians believe that they are Qin's afterlife bodyguards, keeping this ultimate resting place safe from all enemies. Others believe that the soldiers are a replica of the massive travel party he used to survey his lands with. After all, one of the many discoveries in the surrounding area was a perfect replica of Qin Shi Huang's royal carriage. Was he hoping to travel around in the afterlife with his army in tow? There's another curious thing about the terracotta warriors. 
Not a single solitary one is alike. Out of the 8,000 and counting that archaeologists clean, catalog, and rebuild every day, not a single one has a copy. This leads many archaeologists and historians to believe that these aren't simply creative sculptures. They're portraits. Many believe that each and every terracotta soldier is an exact replica of a real person who worked for Qin Shi Huang. This is fascinating for more than a few reasons. You see, several ancient cultures, like the Egyptians, for instance, believed that when you died, your soul carried on in the spirit world. In fact, Egyptian nobles would sit for sculptors to recreate their likeness in stone, hoping that when they passed on, they could inhabit that statue in the afterlife and continue on living as themselves. Ancient Chinese culture held similar beliefs. Life carried on after death. That's why tombs were arranged with objects their inhabitants would need. Future generations were always inextricably linked to their dead ancestors who carried on in the spirit world. Going by that logic, Qin Shi Huang did something that few who attempt immortality ever do. He tried to take others with him. Lots and lots of others. Was this an act of kindness? Providing an afterlife vessel to his loyal subjects? Or was he just making sure that he had servants in the afterlife to do his immortal bidding? We'll never know. There's one more enormous mystery hiding within these pretty mountains. For all that has been excavated and cataloged since the 1970s, we haven't actually found Qin Shi Huang himself. The entire burial ground is larger than the Pyramid of Giza, but the emperor's tomb is said to be deep, deep in the ground, much farther than has been excavated thus far. We don't know for sure what's down there, but we do have a few theories. One stems from the ancient historian who chronicled Qin Shi Huang's life. Though the man offered absolutely no information on the terracotta warriors or their purpose, he wrote about Qin's burial chamber in surprising detail. He writes fanciful descriptions of the sun, moon, and stars painted in constellations above him to bless his resting place, of eternal torches burning to keep light upon the emperor in his afterlife as he slumbers in an intricate recreation of his palace. Most fascinating of all, the historian writes about the floor of the tomb being a recreation of rivers and oceans, but instead of water, they're all filled with an endless supply of shiny, sparkling liquid mercury. Initially, scientists called BS on this. Yeah, sure, literal rivers of mercury. Sure, okay. But recently, the burial site was tested using remote sensors and spectral analysis and the level of mercury in the soil is 20 times higher than the surrounding area. The fairy tale description of silver rivers and sparkling stars might actually be true. And there's something else that excites scientists about Jin Chi Huang's tomb. It's possible that he might be beautifully preserved. During the Qin Dynasty, it was a common burial practice to lay bodies to rest several feet below the earth, sometimes completely covered in a sort of jade armor to preserve the body, or wrapped in a mystery substance that would aid preservation. Shortly before the discovery of the terracotta soldiers, a noblewoman's tomb was unearthed in the Hunan province of China. The corpse, referred to as Lady Dai, is still hailed as one of the most perfectly preserved mummies in all of history. When she was uncovered, her skin was still soft and elastic, with several of her organs intact, and her ligaments hadn't deteriorated. She was in such incredible condition that scientists tested her and found she still had type A blood preserved in her veins. Her hair and eyelashes were still intact. She was 2,000 years old. It's possible that Qin Shi Huang may be that perfectly preserved as well. After all, she was a noblewoman, he was a great emperor, it's likely that he could be even better kept. Scientists might even be able to determine his specific facial features, blood type, and hair color. If so, that would be an unbelievable moment for archaeologists. There's just one problem. If Qin Shi Huang is buried where we think he is, he's too far beneath the surface to be excavated. The Chinese government has taken the stance that no archaeological work is to be done on the suspected location of Qin's tomb. Despite what the public wishes, the government fears that it can't currently be excavated without parts of the tomb being damaged. For now, Qin Shi Huang remains locked in the earth. But archaeologists are confident that it won't be like that forever. Yan Zhongyi, the director emeritus of the Qin Shi Huang Mausoleum Museum and one of the first archaeologists on site in the 70s, feels quite hopeful. With his grandfatherly smile and bright eyes, he told the Smithsonian, though we are not excavating the tomb at present, we might want to consider in the future we could use new forms of technology to investigate the underground palace. In my view, I'd say it's possible. For now, 
the site will remain dedicated to Qin Shi Huang's Army of the Afterlife, a beloved destination for all budding archaeologists and historians. It could be argued that, even though he's buried deep in the ground, Qin Shi Huang did in fact find immortality. His legacy still echoes all over modern China. The borders of his empire still exist in many ways. China is now in the midst of one of its most prosperous periods in history, and it's a country rich in diversity, just as the Qin laid the groundwork for. There are 56 distinct ethnic groups that speak a combination of 302 languages. The Great Wall still stands as a world monument, thousands of years after he took his last breath. Roads he would have traveled are still there. There are even people who still use the Qin script. When the Terracotta Warriors were opened to the public on October 1, 1979, it captured the world's imagination and never let go. The Warriors have inspired countless poems, artwork, movies, and books by people all over the world. Historians of ancient Chinese culture all agree that his achievements far outshine any of his failures. It cannot be denied that this man, as controversial as he was, dedicated every moment of his life to the development of China, laying the foundation for a country that would still be going strong thousands of years later. His work outlasted nearly all of the generations that came before or after him. Qin Shi Huang was a man who wanted to cheat death to become immortal. And talking to you here today, 2,200 years after his death, I'd argue that he achieved it. Chasing Immortality is hosted and recorded in the City of Angels by me, Tybee Diskin, and produced by Alice Flanders, with sound editing and music by Doug Borntrager. This episode was researched and written by Alex Rouse. Our show is executive produced by the immortal Travis McElroy. If you enjoyed the show, make sure to subscribe and tell your immortality-chasing cohorts to listen. Good luck and happy hunting. Hi, everybody. It's me again, executive producer Travis McRoy. If you're enjoying the show, which I sure hope you are, please consider supporting us on Patreon. We're an independent show, and we'd love to make more and more episodes and keep this show going forever. But we can't do that without your support. So please consider going to patreon.com slash chasing immortality and becoming a supporter today. We will be eternally grateful.